Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, February the 12th, 2022. It is currently 10.07 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. Now, a common practice of mine, and if you've been a longtime listener, you know this, that I spent a lot of my overnight time, I spent a lot of the overnight hours listening to podcasts, right? I listen to a lot of different things overnight. I cannot even attempt to go to sleep in silence. My brain is always moving at a, like a million miles per second. So I have to like, I have to be listening to something so that my mind will simply focus on one thing. And then maybe, maybe then I can get a few hours of sleep. But if it's silence, my brain is just like going and going. And it's like to this subject, this thing, this thing. This, and it's, it's maddening. But if, I, if I'm listening to one thing, then I can kind of put my focus there. It brings a little sense of calm to my brain. And then po- the possibility of sleep at least exist. Doesn't mean it will happen, but it, it, it means that it's at least possible. And if, if it's possible, then that, that, that's somewhat of a good thing because, yeah, yeah you need sleep sometimes. I, I, I hate sleep. But we're not here to talk about my sleep habits, but we're, ta- we're here to talk about something I heard while I was trying to go to sleep because typically I'm sitting there listening to the news and, you know, you have a pretty good idea what you're going to hear depending on what's going on within that news cycle. You know, like, okay, we're going to be talking about Russia, Ukraine. Okay, we're going to be talking maybe about a recession. We're going to be talking about the the situation in Canada with the, the, the protests by the truck drivers. Okay, there are certain things, maybe uh, talking about the Super Bowl. Okay, there, there are certain things I, I know I kind of expect right now that's showing up in the news over and over and over and over and over and over again, all right? So I'm sitting there, it's dark, and all of a sudden a news story comes on and they start talking about Jerusalem, the Temple Mound, uh, Jews, Jews going undercover to pray on the Temple Mount. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, what, what's going on here? Wait, okay, wasn't expecting this news story. I've got Jerusalem, I've got the Temple Mount, I've got Jews going undercover to pray on the Temple Mount. And I'm like, well, this has so much to do with the Bible, biblical prophecy, all the different approaches to biblical prophecy. There, there's a lot we could do with this, but it was just an interesting news story. So I'm gonna play the clip that I heard you know, overnight. And then I, then we'll, we're going to just, I don't even know which direction we're going to go, but we're going to go in a number of different directions. And this may actually lead to a, a broader study later on, especially of the last uh, section of the book of Ezekiel, because it, I think there would be a lot there to possibly, that this would possibly lead to a discussion. So we have Jews, the Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Jews going undercover, this is a this is a very interesting story, and it just brings up so many theological and biblical concepts that I thought um, I thought well I thought I'd start this morning of live broadcast off with sharing this. So are you ready? Here we go. In Jerusalem's old city, the Al Aqsa compound, also known as Temple Mount, is sometimes called the ground zero of the Israel Palestinian conflict. Issues over access to the contested holy site revered by Muslims and Jews, are a constant trigger for tensions. 
But recently, there's been a dangerous new development with extremist Jews revealing that they've been dressing as Muslims and learning basic Arabic to enter and pray. Our Middle East correspondent, Yolan Nell, spoke to one of them. Okay, now they're being classified as extremist Jews. Now, here's what they're doing. They're, they're going undercover. They are basically pretending to be Muslim so that they can get access to the Temple Mount and they can pray. Now, we could talk about whether we think this is right, whether we think this is wrong. We, we, could, we could have a discussion there, but it's just this, this immediately I was like, whoa, what, what's going on? So they're pretending to be Muslims so they can get access to the Temple Mount, which means, obviously, in the Jewish mind, that the Temple Mount is of great significance to them, right? Great significance. Just, just keep that in mind. There are Jewish men with their distinctive tasseled shawls lined up by the ancient limestone blocks of the Western Wall. It's the holiest place where Jews are allowed to pray, but some want to go a step further. The mission is to reconquer the Temple Mount. Muslims could go in to the Temple Mount nearly all the hours a day, but Jews could go in only like four or five hours a day and you're escorted by cops and you can't pray. Raphael Morris leads an extremist Jewish group. Its members try to pray at Temple Mount, above the Western Wall, but they take special instructions on Islamic customs first. Because the most revered site for Jews is also the third most sacred for Muslims. It contains Al-Aqsa Mosque. They have to go in disguise, shaving off their long side locks and wearing Palestinian dress. It takes about, I guess, like half an hour to get ready. And we learn a bit of Arabic. You could come as a Muslim's time of praying and pray with them, but just mumble the Jewish prayer. Anyone who's discovered could be arrested or attacked. At the beginning, it's quite scary, but you get used to it very fast. And it's actually very amazing that you feel free, that finally you could pray and walk and do whatever you want. Tensions at this contested compound have often ignited violence in a decades-old conflict. Since Israel captured Jerusalem's old city in the 1967 Middle East War, Jews have been permitted to visit but not to pray openly. In recent years, there's been a sharp rise in the number allowed to come. For Palestinians, any change to the fragile status quo is a provocation. Al-Aqsa is my life. It's part of our faith as Muslims. Al-Aqsa is not an ordinary mosque for us. We have the responsibility to protect and defend Al-Aqsa Mosque. Most days, Hanadi Halawani can be found at the mosque, although the Israeli authorities have previously barred her from the site. She's seen as part of an illegal Islamist group, but denies doing anything wrong. Hanadi is angry at Jewish attempts to worship here. It's clear that the settlers entering Al-Aqsa in disguise hides aggression and terrorizes Muslims praying. It's clearly political. And Raphael, like other nationalist Jews, makes no secret of his ultimate goal, to build a third temple to replace two destroyed in biblical times. It would be where the Dome of the Rock stands. It should be just where there's a big gold mosque. The temple should be exactly over there. And yeah, it will hurt, and it's not nice. But that's our vision, and, and that's the next stage. 
Israeli police recently banned Rafael from the old city for three months, but he insists he'll be back. While his group is only small, the fear is that it could spark a dangerous new flare-up. That report by Yolande Nell. Now, there is so much in that report going on. Again, you can you could talk all day about, well, should you pretend to be a Muslim to go in so that you can pray in the Temple Mount? But, but just here's the thing. The focus is so much on a place, the place, the place, and that we need the temple right here. We want the third temple built. Now, all of this language has so much to do with with biblical prophecy, depending on your view of eschatology. There's so much to discuss, but I want to start, I'm going to start this discussion, I think, in the most important place, all right? This is so very, 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 very important. If you read the book of Hebrews, it was written around 66 AD, and I think the correct way to interpret the book of Hebrews is the book of Hebrews is written to tell Jews that all of your religious system. Everything that you hold dear is about to go away. It's all going to be destroyed. And if you hold on to that, you're not going to have anything. You're not going to have a sacrificial system. You're not going to have a high priest. You're not going to have anything. It's all going away because 66 AD, we know what's just around the corner in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed and they're no longer going to have a sacrificial system. They're not going to have a priest. They're not going to have a temple. They're not going to have anything. And from 70 AD, here we are 2022 and the Jews are still without that temple. They want it built right there on the temple mount. They want it there. They are praying for it. They want it. They're sneaking in, disguising themselves to be Muslims because they want to pray on that holy site. That's what they want. They're longing for it. They're looking for it. But Hebrews tried to tell the Jews it's all going away, but something better has come. Something better than your old priestly system. Something better than your sacrificial system. Something better. And that better was Jesus Christ, a better priest, a better sacrifice. He's even better than the temple. If you'll go to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. This is Jesus speaking. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Jesus Christ is greater than the temple. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the high priest. Jesus Christ is all of those things that the the temple, in a sense, was pointing to. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. And so it is sad to hear the Jews, in a sense, still looking for a building, looking for that place, longing to be on on that ground, instead of looking to one who is greater than all of that. Jesus Christ is what they need to hear and need to look to and to be taught about. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. So I think that's a very important place to start. That's so critical. That's so critical. Hebrews, if you if you interpret Hebrews in that light, that this is a warning to the Jews that their entire system is about to be destroyed and Jesus is better. Jesus is 
the fulfillment of all of that. I think so many times people go to the book of Hebrews and they're like, oh, wait, this passage says you can lose your salvation. And we get into a whole argument about can you lose your salvation or you can't lose your salvation. No, this is about Jews. If they return to Judaism, they're going, in a sense, they're not going to have any salvation because all the things that would be required for salvation, in a sense, from a Jewish perspective, high priest, temple, sacrifice, it's all going to be destroyed. You need to look to Jesus Christ. That is so important. But there's an issue here that divides Christians even in 2022, and that is this issue. Will a third temple be built? Will a third temple be built right there on the Temple Mount? Will it be built? There are many Christians who say, yes, it will be built. And the Antichrist will enter in there and declare himself to be God. Others are like, no, there's not going to be a third temple. And even if it is, even if a third temple is built, it's insignificant. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It has nothing to do with that. But others say, no, a temple will be built and Jesus Christ will return and rule and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Others believe that. And, and both sides of this will make their arguments and go back and forth and, and many cases be derogatory to the other perspective. But just know that, that Christians are greatly divided on this subject. And one of the sections of Scripture that seems to be so absolute critical to this discussion is Ezekiel chapter 40 to Ezekiel chapter 48. Eight chapters. Eight chapters. And these eight chapters, it's amazing how drastically different the interpretations of these eight chapters has been throughout church history. It is amazing when you like, you'll read some commentaries and be like, wait, what? And you'll read another commentary, go, okay, okay. And it's just, they're like, they're night and day. They're like, not you're almost like they're written from completely, you're like, wait a minute, are we reading the same chapters? But the, 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 the discussion here is, is pretty uh, important to consider. So I'm just going to read a couple of things about Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel 40 through 48, con, uh, Ezekiel concludes those uh, chapters, 40 through 48, with a vision, and I'm just going to say, of a temple. Some commentaries would say of the millennial temple. In other words, some people believe this describes a temple that's going to be built and that will be there for the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign. Now, other, others will, will say, no, it's not. Some, so in other words, some will say this describes a literal temple that will be literally built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it will be there for the literal reign of Christ in Jerusalem for a literal thousand years. Others say, no, what it, it is not describing a literal temple. It's figurative. It's an allegory. It's spiritual. And people will debate. So I'm going to read a little bit here. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change words here. I'm going to try to go through each part and try to show you how each side will probably present some of this. But so just think this through. All right, here we go. So Ezekiel concludes with a vision of a temple. Everyone can read that for themselves and can see that. And uh, it says, and uh, he concludes this, this book 
with God on the throne of this world, ruling from his temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. Now, some people will say, well, it's, it's spiritual. It's figurative. It's, it's him ruling. It's him ruling the world through the church. It's, it's him ruling from the church, Jerusalem, the temple. All of that is reference to the church. It's not a reference to a literal temple, literal Jerusalem. As one, as one article says, this is the glorious event for which all the saints are earnestly looking for when the kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation eleven fifteen. Ezekiel begins with God's glory departing from the temple, Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19, 11, 22 through 23, and ends with God's glory returning, Ezekiel 43, 2 through 5. This is yet future. Some would argue, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's already happened. It's symbolic of, of basically uh, Christ ruling and reigning through the church. I continue reading. We do not read of the glory of God filling Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple. The glory of God came to Israel in the form of the son of God, but he was rejected. John chapter one, verses 11 and 14. Now, this is very important. Listen carefully to how this is described. This is from an article called the Millennial Temple. They, they clearly believe this is the Millennial Temple. I'm changing some of the words because I'm trying to make sure you see how there's this back and forth. And I, I think a good way, if you want a, a good way to see this, look up a number of commentaries on Ezekiel 40 through 48 and make one of them specifically the Matthew Henry commentary. Right. Make sure one of them is the Matthew Henry commentary, because you'll see more of the spiritualizing of the section and at least be familiar with it. Right. It's one thing just to condemn a perspective, but at least be familiar with it. And if you maybe you're someone who holds to the Matthew Henry perspective, at least consider some of the things in Ezekiel that I think challenges maybe the spiritual interpretation. Let's just consider here. This article makes the following argument. That this is a literal temple is obvious from the detail of its description. There are 318 precise measurements. Now you can go through Ezekiel 40 through 48 and you can verify if that is accurate. How many times are precise measurements given and Ezekiel 40 through 48. Now, why would it be, here's a precise measurement, here's a precise measurement, but it's not real. It's not real. It's figurative. And then you fall what? You fall into numerology going, the measurement means this and the measurement represents this. I mean, that just turns into a very subjective way of interpreting uh, those chapters. In my estimation, uh, let's go through this. So they, they, according to them, there are 318 precise measurements. You can verify if that's true. I don't know if there's 318. I know there are a lot, but I know, uh, I don't, cannot, I don't think I've counted to verify 318, but there are a lot. There are the use of 37 unique terms such as doorpost, windows, arches, stairs, pillars, etc., etc. You'll You'll see these, you know, very, speaking of architecture, very, very specific terms referring, referring to things like, you know, here's, again, let me go through a list of some of the ones they offered. Doorpost, windows, arches, stairs, pillars. Now, again, are all of those just symbolic? 
In other words, why would the why would you have eight chapters that's giving measurement, 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 describing all of these architectural details, but you come to find out, oh, it's not actually real. It's all spiritualized. It's all spiritualized. Now, if you all spiritualize it, then really after a while, you're just like, okay, here's eight chapters. We don't really need to go through all of it because it's just a lot of detail that's simply saying this is a spiritual temple and it's not real. It would just seem to be overboard, wouldn't it? Right? I mean, it just seems that that just is hard for me to wrap my mind around. And I would raise this question. If, if 40 through 48 is not literal, it's all spiritual, then what in the book of Ezekiel can be understood as literal? Like, so, like, if we start from Ezekiel 1, now I know there's a lot of things in, in the book that you could say is it, but like what parts are, what parts aren't, when do I consider it literal, when do I consider it not literal, when is it figurative, and, well, you, you, can, you would have to figure out and ask yourself some of those questions. Um, now, this is interesting. Now, just you may want to consider this. This is, this is the fourth Jewish temple. The first was Solomon's. The second was Zerubbabel's. It was enlarged by Herod, but Herod's temple is not considered a separate temple as the temple ceremonies continue during his construction project. The third temple will be built. So it's like some will call it the fourth, but in some ways it's actually the third because Herod's is not considered a separate temple, just so that you know that. And this third temple, according to this view, will be built during the reign of the Antichrist and desecrated by him. So they make an argument. Some would say it's fourth, but four, but we think that the reason we would say it's three is because Herod's is not considered a separate one. Okay. The question is, will it be built? They say it will be built during the reign of the, the Antichrist, is their, their exact words here. Yeah, during the reign of the Antichrist, and then he will desecrate it. He will desecrate it. The scriptures, you probably are very familiar that they are going to use here, is Matthew 24, which I know produces many, uh, you know, problems. Matthew chapter 24, right? Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 24 carefully, you know that this first and foremost, Matthew 24 has to be interpreted as referring to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's, that's, the, that's the context here. And the reason I show, I, I will just show you this. Matthew chapter 24, 24 verse one. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. There's the temple that's standing. And uh, his disciples came to him for to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, see you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left there one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then they come and say, when are these things going to be fulfilled? And he begins to give them the signs of when this is going to be fulfilled. He's, given, he's giving them signs for the destruction of that temple, which we know exactly when it was destroyed 70 AD. So whenever you go to Matthew 24, you got to first and foremost, always apply it to 70 AD. Now there are, there are good arguments that at some point it seems to jump because there's some things that don't seem to fit in perfectly 
with 70 AD, unless you say that somehow in 70 AD, Jesus returned in some spiritual way, which we could get into preterism and, and some of those discussions. But Matthew 24, 15, they have here. Matthew 24, verse 15, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel, the prophet stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Now this abomination of desolation, some believe it occurred in 70 AD. Others will believe, no, this is going to occur in the future. And you get into some back and forth. So I, I'm not a big fan of using Matthew 24 to try to prove anything. But then they offer 2 Thessalonians. They offer 2 Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians. We get to 2 Thessalonians really quick. Here we go. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. We read this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse... Well, we'll go back to... Um, we'll just go back to verse 1. We'll just read it all. In context, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our, own, by our, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except, the, except they're coming a falling away first, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, this, this day that's approaching is not going to happen until a falling away occurs first. Now, wait a minute. Are you going to say that the falling away occurred between 33 AD and 69 AD? That, 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 I have a problem there. So this seems to be pointing to something before, after 70 AD. Then the son of perdition has to be revealed. All right. Did that happen prior to 70 AD? And if it didn't happen prior to 70 AD, then did it happen after 70 AD? Or are we still waiting for the son of perdition to be revealed? Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, if this is referring to something that happens after 70 AD, well, it references the temple. Now, some may argue, well, no, the temple there is referencing the church and that the church is going to fall away and that the church is somehow going to be controlled and ruled by basically Satan. Now, this is the kind of thinking that led to Harold Camping, uh, going way back, uh, who was uh, in charge of family radio, teaching the end of the church age, that the church had fallen away, and now Satan was in control of the local church, so everyone should leave their local churches, okay? So, like, the, the, all of these verses lead to all kinds of theological questions and trying to figure some of these things out. I think it is interesting to note, in fact, we'll look at this, See if I have it right here in this book. I think it's important that if you look up 2 Thessalonians, right? If you look up 2 Thessalonians, um, it was written in 50 AD. Now, 2 Thessalonians being written in 50 AD, well, then is this pointing to 70 AD? 
Is it pointing to 70 AD? Well, if it's pointing to 70 AD, then the falling away occurred before 70 AD. And the son of perdition was he revealed and then desecrated the temple. So could, could you find a way to make this all be fulfilled prior to 70 AD? And then, uh, then ultimate fulfillment in 70 AD. See, so in other words, for every passage that someone puts forward, there's all these back and forth and how to interpret it and how to interpret it and how to interpret it. All right. Then um, what I would challenge you to do this. This is what I would challenge you to do. I just wanted you to hear this news article just showing you that in 2022, the Temple Mount, Jews are still trying to gain access. They're still trying to pray there. It's still lots of conflict. Everybody wants control over it. The Jews want that temple built. All of those issues are still present in 2022. And those issues very much pertain to biblical prophecy. But whenever you look at any of these verses that someone could just throw out and go, see, this shows you the Antichrist is going to come and desecrate the temple, I can go and go, well, wait a minute. Could that not refer to what happened in 70 AD? 2 Thessalonians 2.4, I mean, it was written in 50 AD, so does 70 AD fulfill it? Matthew 24, there's no question the context there is about 70 AD. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't parts that possibly jump, but the, the most of it is going to be fulfilled in 70 AD. There's no way to get around that. But then you go to Ezekiel 40 through 48, you're like, man, that's eight chapters describing in painstaking detail a temple, its measurements, its architecture. It's, it's, that doesn't seem like, well, that's a spiritual temple. That's the church. I, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work. I, 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 that's where I have trouble. Look, I, I'm willing. And here's the thing. Sometimes it, uh, people were like, so, so exactly what, what do you think here? What exactly, what do you think about these, these issues? Let me, let me try to explain something. Here's one of the good things. And one of the bad things, the good thing is uh, that I, uh, it's good and bad. And I'll just, I'll first, I'll say what it is. And then I'll tell you how it's good and how it's bad. I went to every kind of Bible college and seminary that I could get into, right? If I had the money and I had the way, I would, I would apply. And if I got accepted, I went to a, every Bible college I could, every seminary I could, every Bible institute. I didn't care how small or insignificant the Bible college was. It didn't matter if it was a big seminary, small seminary. If I, if I could get the money and I could go, I went. I even went to Harold Camping's Family Radio School of the Bible. I was a student even there when everything started falling apart. And he went from basically an amillennial position to this crazy, the end of the world's going to happen in 1994. I went through, I lived through all of that. But I went to every school, and in every school, you would hear so many different things when it comes to eschatology and biblical prophecy. I sat in schools that were very much dispensational. I had to write papers from an amillennial position. I wrote papers from so many different perspectives. Now, that, that's good because I saw all of the different perspectives. It's bad because anytime anyone offers any argument about anything from eschatology, I can always play the devil's advocate and go, well, what about this? What about this? And there's a lot of questions that are just not, preachers always try to make it sound like it's so simple. Here's the, here's the way to interpret it. And I always want to say, yeah, you're interpreting it that way because I bet you, you read that book or I bet you you're using that commentary. Yeah. If I just go grab one commentary and preach that commentary, it can appear to make perfect sense. Like reading this article that I have here in front of me. 
if I would just read it the way it's written, right, and not bring in all the different perspectives, I mean, for example, just the Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians passage. Let me read that paragraph and just show you how dogmatic they make this. This is the fourth Jewish temple. The first was Solomon's. The second was Zerubbabel's. It was enlarged by Herod, but Herod's temple is not considered a separate temple as the temple ceremonies continue during the construction period. Now listen to how dogmatic this is. The third temple will be built during the reign of the Antichrist and desecrated by him. Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Now, a lot of preachers would just grab that, preach it dogmatically, read those verses like, here, this proves it. The person sitting in the pew, like, well, they read Matthew 24, they read 2 Thessalonians, that proves it. Yeah, but someone needs to go, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, if you know the other side, then you can go, but wait, Matthew 24, that's that's 70 AD. 2 Thessalonians, wait, that's written in 50 AD. Could that be make a reference to 70 AD? Like, you've got to ask the, the, the other side, you've got to present the other side as well. And so many times I, I think preachers don't do that. And they convince the people that it's so simple, it's so easy. And then they're the Christians running around on social media or making YouTube comments like they think they've got it all figured out. They're geniuses. And you're just like, you're, you're not even, you're not even, you're not, you're, you're completely ignoring all the, the possible issues with your perspective. There, there are lots of issues here. At the same time, I'll read Matthew Henry's commentary on Isaiah or Ezekiel, and at times it's maddening to me. He spiritualizes, it seems, everything. Everything's the church. Everything's the church. The church, the church, the church. That's not Israel. That's the church. Those blessings don't go to Israel. That's the church. Oh, those judgments, they go to they, they go to Israel. And it's just like, that doesn't work either. But the issues are still present. So what can we do? First and foremost, I'm going to end with this. First and foremost, we have to always remember whether a temple is going to be built or whether a temple is not going to be built, whether Jesus is going to rule and reign literally in Jerusalem or whether he is not. Here's one thing we always have to remember. Ultimately, we look to Jesus. We don't look to a temple. We don't look to all of these. We look to Jesus. We look to his sacrifice. We look to him being our high priest. We look to him. That's who we look to. That's what the Jews need to be told to look to. Look to Jesus. He is better. He is the one that we look to. That's where salvation is found. At the same time, so that's number one. We have to look to Jesus. Number two, it is very important that when we consider these issues, that we do so trying to understand all the different perspectives. So that if someone says Matthew 24, you can go, okay, I I agree, but Matthew 24 clearly is about 70 AD, right? And we bring in that, we, we balance our views out by considering both sides so that we try to make sure that we are as accurate and precise as we can be. But you can't ex- ignore Ezekiel 40 through 48. You can't ignore it. I don't know how you spiritualize it. I don't know. It just seems crazy that eight chapters describing something that's not real, eight chapters that's describing a spiritual reality by bending over backwards to go go overboard with describing every physical detail. All of the physical details are not really describing physical details. They're describing spiritual realities. That seems crazy to me. But you can look at it. I don't know 
you know, look, I, I, I've, I've always said this. I don't know how I, 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 I have certain views about eschatology. I've changed my views. I used to be very much more in the all mill camp. I've kind of, from a hermeneutical, re, from, from a hermeneutical perspective, it just doesn't work when I'm getting into Isaiah and Ezekiel and I'm spiritualizing all of those things. That starts falling apart to me, right? I know this. If the temple mount, if the, if the, if the golden dome there explodes and a construction starts on a new temple, I don't know about you, put it this way. If the dome explodes, okay, I'm going to be like, uh, okay, uh, maybe we need to get ready. All right. Maybe we need to get ready. If the construction on on the third temple starts, maybe, yeah, I'm putting it this way. I'm going to pull, I'm going to make sure I have every view of biblical prophecy clearly memorized to know what's coming. All right. To know what's going to happen. And I, I know you can bring in the rapture theology. I know we can bring in all kinds of other elements, but I'm just talking about if, if the temple starts get, getting rebuilt and Jews have been wanting it forever. But if something was to happen where it became possible for them to start rebuilding it, what does that mean? I, I, I mean, a lot of people would be like, well, that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel 40 through 48. And if the temple's going to be rebuilt, then do we understand some of these passages not only referring to what happened in 70 AD, but maybe also referring to something that's going to happen in the future. And then do you start looking for a son of perdition, an antichrist who goes into the temple and desecrates it, and declares himself to be God? That, that's, I mean, it's one of those things where you're, you're trying to pay attention. And I just found that very interesting. And I wanted to at least bring, I know I've just, I really, what I've done here is just brought up a number of issues pertaining to this subject, but I just want you to show that there's so many factors here. And some of you may be super familiar with all of these. Some of you may not be familiar with any of this, but at least Ezekiel 40 through 48, you, you read and you figure out what you think is the best way to handle it. You, you figure it out. And, and maybe we'll do some teaching on Ezekiel 40 through 48, just kind of walking through it just to see, um, because it is, it's, it's fascinating. I, I will give you that. It's fascinating. And, and the different approaches and read different commentaries. But I, I could say more, but I'll stop right there. I just wanted, I just really just wanted you to hear that news article, that news report, because it was just so fascinating to me. All right, you can email me your thoughts on all of this, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.